Hey, podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. All right. Happy Thursday morning, everybody. We are back. Welcome back, boss man. We're going to be doing a little walk down memory lane. Uh, one of the most interesting business models in internet business is affiliate marketing. And we're going to talk about some of the history of that. We've been around for a lot of it. Uh, but first, I just wanted to zorb in here to the top of the episode and talk a little bit about the challenges we've been facing in the hiring market. Of course, one of the promises of affiliate marketing as a business model is that it's pretty labor efficient. Uh, whereas a lot of business models are contingent on labor costs. They're essentially labor arbitrages. A lot of professional services are like this, one of which we run. And I thought uh, it would be interesting to hear your perspective on some of the challenges we're facing in the hiring marketplace right now. Well, I'll tell you some of them that are like cropping up recently. Essentially, it's Canada's market right now. Just come out and say that. Like, I think candidates have a lot of options. Through a recruiting service, um, it used to be the case that candidates would apply to jobs and through their application, essentially, they would be guaranteed to take that job. Like, hey, I'm opting into this opportunity early. Here's my resume. I want this job. It's not always the case anymore, which I'm finding to be interesting. Essentially, go through the process, hardball with companies, whether it's like on salary or benefits or workflow or whatever it is. But these candidates, they're um, they're getting smarter. They're getting tougher. They're starting to realize that they have a lot more options. And so for us, you know, as a broker of that deal, it's uh, starting to become a little bit more difficult. And I'd say for the companies, it's difficult too, because essentially, whether you like it or not, if you're a company, you've essentially opted into a global marketplace for talent now. You know, it used to be just a few years ago, Dan, that you were hiring locally and like those constraints were real and you kind of understood the economics of it. So, you know, there's a lot of forces at play here, but I, I can say with certainty that there's going to have to be some changes on both sides. Like on the company side, they're going to have to adjust their expectations either for salary or for talent. So, if you can't or you won't pay kind of the market rate of this global economy now, you're going to have to like hire more junior people and probably train them. Do you have any numbers like ballpark figures you're seeing here? Well, we're starting to pull together um, just numbers for all different positions in terms of what a market rate is. And we do this all day. Somebody will come to us and say, hey, we're looking to hire a a developer or a product manager, you know, we can look at historical data. It's tough to say because there are so many parameters. Correct. Yeah. But we're actually starting to pull that data together. And I think that'll be interesting to share with people. Yeah. And, and let me translate this for founders. I mean, a lot of people think, oh my gosh, you guys started working hard on a remote jobs board in 2020. You know, what great timing. And I think it was great timing for some other remote job boards, but us specifically, we're the insider OGs serving like these remote first small organizations. It was bad for us and bad for our clients. Yes, there's a lot of general mainstream interest, but if you're an insider that's been running these sorts of businesses for years, things have changed and it's challenging. So the bottom line is in 2017, the fact that you existed was enough to pay really competitive labor rates. And essentially what 
you know, the message I think we're coming here at the top of the podcast to say is something's got to give in this current marketplace and it's something on your end. And that means you're either paying 25% more for the same people, you're changing the country that you're hiring people in, you're improving your business model, you are accepting that you're going to have to educate candidates with less experience. You have to basically choose one, right? In the cycling industry, they say light, stiff, and cheap, (laughs) choose two. And it's that similar triad here where our clients, listeners of this podcast that use Dynamite Jobs, they have to give something now, whether it's an extraordinary mission to be a part of. Just being remote and salary isn't enough anymore. There has to be a great mission. There has to be a higher salary. There has to be um, something. (laughs) You just can't go back to the old well of like, we're a remote company, come work for us. It's crazy because that changed so fast. Like, you know, it was first like nobody's remote. Now, like everybody's remote. Now it's like remote's not good enough. <laughs> yeah. I also I- need this. So, I mean, the, the pace in which things are accelerating is, is amazing. I think the good news for companies is like if you're going to survive, which I think a lot of people listening to this podcast are, if you're in the pursuit of survival, you will figure out a way yes. to least resistance. And so that might mean technology. Like you said, that might mean hiring a different country or something like that. So it'll be interesting to see the ways in which that happens. I'll tell you my advice. This is an advice podcast sometimes. Pay more. Just pay more for better people. I think holding yourself to that standard of I'm going to build a business that can afford the best people and that's a virtuous cycle. Yeah. That's an interesting one that we talked about actually before the show, Dan. We were like kind of going through different um, business models. You know, like the model where you take a percentage of a fee um, this is a common one, like a brokerage firm or something like that. You're fixed to that fee, right? So like everything underneath that fee dictates everything that you can do. So it is interesting when you're thinking about picking a business model or a service or a product or anything like that, like to figure out which ones have like the most expansive margins. Well, speaking of margins, Ian, that's the topic today. I think it's fair to say we're going to talk about affiliate marketing. I remember way back in the day when Pat Flynn launched Smart Passive Income, which was at the time sort of a fresh take on what was an old business model at the time. That was 2008. We were thinking affiliate marketing was an older business model. It has continued to evolve and it continues to be an amazing opportunity for listeners of this show for all the criticism that affiliate marketing can sometimes get, especially in those intervening years. There's a variety of reasons why this business model is criticized, especially people, you know, the self-licking ice cream cone element of it, you know, selling courses about courses, how you can build a course on a course, you know what I'm talking about. Um, But for every critic, the reality is, is that there's hundreds, if not thousands, of people making a sustainable income for themselves, their families, and their team members. So yeah, Ian, one of the things that I think is really interesting about uh, today's guest's approach to affiliate marketing is simply how legible it is. Like there is a very clear game plan and roadmap for how you can emulate the success of those before you. And I think that this approach to getting started online for the 20% of the audience who is looking to transition into entrepreneurship, I think affiliate marketing represents a wonderful way to stair-step yourself into the game. I'm Doug Huntington, and I run a blog called Niche Site Project, and I also have a podcast called The Doug Show. 
and I talk about affiliate marketing and SEO and online business in general. So I didn't start there. I started doing management consulting and I really didn't like it and accidentally found my way into this world from Pat Flynn and Smart Passive Income. And that was in 2013. And I thought the whole thing sounded like a scam. But then in 2015, I got laid off and I've been doing it full time since then and really kind of got my footing after a couple years, just trying and failing and some false starts. Could you give the audience a sense for what your business looks like? My business has, has shifted quite a bit over time. One thing in the very beginning within that first six months is I, I wanted to have you know these affiliate sites or content sites. Sometimes we earn money from ads as well. So there are content sites where maybe we promote products earn money through affiliate marketing. But I also knew that I, for whatever reason, wanted to earn money from my own personal brand and have courses and have another piece that was sort of independent from our overlords, Google and Amazon or whoever is running those affiliate programs. So from the beginning, I sort of split my time and I've generally earned about 50% of my income from the content sites and affiliate marketing and the other portion from my own products. I usually don't share my exact revenue or anything like that, but I could say that I had a good job making six figures doing project management and management consulting. And within like a year or two, I was making more than twice that uh, fairly consistently. It sounds amazing. What sucks about it? One piece, which I alluded to before is you don't control the sort of supply and demand of your website. So you have uh, traffic coming in from Google, typically that's organic SEO traffic, that's a core piece of it. And there are algorithm updates happening all the time. And sometimes it could really impact your site to the level of going, one day you're earning whatever 800 bucks a day, and then you earn $8 a day the next day. And that happened early on to me. Now, the other side of it is where we're earning the money. So Amazon Associates is one of the you know, largest programs out there, if not the largest program. And it's very easy to get started. And since 2013, the effective sort of commission that they've paid you has gone down quite a bit. So there was a big commission rate change in 2017. And then there was another one in 2020. And it depends on your site and where you're earning money and what categories of products are in. But effectively, each one of those dropped your earnings by you know 30 to 50% each time. You don't control those pieces. There's not much you can do. When Amazon changes the, the rates, you can't email Jeff and ask him to uh, reconsider for your site or anything. So you know, that portion <laughs> of it does suck because you, you don't control it. It seems like this industry is is very, it's platform dependent, it's technology dependent. Like in 2004, affiliate marketers were like the only people making money on the internet. But fast forward, what I think is interesting emotionally is that the same moment you discovered this podcast that opened your eyes to like what would completely change your life, I might have thought, had I listened to the same information, thought, man, too bad I missed the affiliate marketing thing. You know, there's already Spencer and there's already Pat. So like, why should Doug start a podcast? Maybe you could talk a little bit about this. Like you're never too late. 
you're never ever too late. So true. And when I did get started in 2013, you would hear the same belly aches that we hear now, affiliate marketing, authority sites, niche sites, it's, it's too saturated. Podcasts are too saturated. I did it and I had no skills in affiliate marketing, being an online presence, blogging, and any of the things that I do on a day-to-day -day basis now. So yeah, you're 100% right. I mean, you can start in probably the most competitive industries and you're still going to be okay. In fact, I was just interviewing someone from a show, Mushfiq from the website Flip, and he started his blog like a year and a half ago. And he's already, I mean, I think he gets more traffic than my site and I've been around for a little bit longer. Of course, he's worked really hard in the last year to get there, but he went into one of the most competitive space, which is internet marketing. And a lot of people say it, Pat Flynn, I, th I think it really stuck with me when he said, even if there's other people doing a podcast on that topic, or they already have a course on that topic, you're particular voice could be valuable in there. You may have a specific take that helps other people out. And from my standpoint, the way I tried to position, you know, my brand and marketing is I had a project management background. I'm a PMP. And typically those folks make pretty good money and they usually don't venture out into our entrepreneur space very often. Maybe golden handcuffs, maybe they suck at online business. I don't know, but there's not too many of us out here doing it. And I thought I can lay that framework and use some of the vocabulary. So one thing I realized is my audience is a people that are similar to me, which is not a profound thing, right? You attract an audience from your sort of same background. So I have a lot of people in IT, a lot of uh, sort of high level or directors, uh, a lot of people that were probably be my peers, or actually I would probably report to them because <laughs> I, I wasn't exceptional at, at, at the uh, corporate job. But yeah, I got started and I just kept at it. And I'm a pretty big fan of uh, Scott Adams, the Dilbert creator. He talks about working on projects that are helpful for you, even if they fail or don't work out how you hope. So for example, if you start a niche site, you're not sure if it's going to you know, work out. We never know if our business endeavors are going to work out. But if you do, you learn about setting up a website. You learn about keyword research. You learn about content, maybe WordPress themes. You learn about plugins and all, all these different skills that can be really helpful in the future. In fact, you may figure out that you're really good at hiring writers and managing them. And that could turn into a whole different business and you realize, ah, I don't want to build an affiliate site. I want to run an agency that works with affiliate marketers, that sort of thing. Right. Sometimes people glaze over and they think, uh, it sounds like a scam. You just set up a website and you get paid for it. That, I mean, that's what I, what I thought, but when you peel it back, it's referral marketing, which is sort of a classic way to generate business. It's fascinating when you were describing essentially like the no downside-ness of this. Uh, I was just speaking with Rob Walling just a few minutes before this call, and we were revisiting his stair-step approach. And it's this similar idea of like a very low-risk way to learn skills and to buttress your core income at your job. I think one of the biggest problems people have in the entrepreneurial space is just taking action. 
because action leads to know-how and, and key knowledge. And now all of a sudden, yeah, you can start an agency. You can scratch your own itch. You can stay in the ecosystem. Like you're sitting on the backs of giants. There's money flowing in front of you all day long. But if instead, you know, listen to podcasts about business theories and you dream of what, how one day you're going to do something, you're much less likely to really get something off the ground. And like you said, you doubled your income in just a few short years. Well, and, and you bring up a good point. A lot of the people that I worked with at the corporate job and myself included, like we, we did not enjoy our job very much. Or one of the issues with people starting is if they are making pretty good money and maybe they have 10 or 15 or 20 years at a corporate gig, they really don't want to work on something if they don't know if it's going to work, like if it's not guaranteed to be successful. And I've seen that several times where someone's like, well, do you think it's going to work? Like, well, I don't know. You got to try it. And it's it's really hard for someone at, at that position where maybe they have a team of 40 people. They don't want to go back and, and start at the beginning and do these sort of trivial tasks. They think, oh, maybe I could just hire people to do everything and then I could just sit back, which technically might be possible. But if you don't have those skills and you're unaware and you're just totally green, it's a good way to throw away some money thinking that you're just outsourcing. But if it was that easy, then everyone would just outsource it. If you need help getting control of your email inbox, this is for you. That's right. This episode is brought to you by the team at MailmanHQ.com. It's a Gmail plugin that lets you decide when and what emails land in your inbox. Many of our listeners spend a huge portion of their days inside of their inbox. And if you're one of them, pay close attention to the next 30 seconds. See, Mailman allows you to set up your own emailing schedule on both your personal and work Gmail accounts such that all incoming emails are collected and delivered to your inbox as per the schedule you set up that's in batches so nothing drops in between. Now, what about those urgent emails? Don't worry, Mailman lets you configure your VIPs so their emails will land in your inbox immediately so you can respond and make progress in your business. And there's so much more too. So get a defender and an ally in your inbox. Get Mailman. Sign up for a free account over at mailmanhq.com slash tropical MBA. If you use that link and decide to upgrade to a paid plan, you'll get 30% off your first year via this link. So here it is again, mailmanhq.com slash tropical MBA. Thanks to the team at Mailman HQ for sponsoring the show. Go give them a try. Give them a look. Get ahead on your inbox. Again, that's mailmanhq.com slash tropical MBA. What is the difference between a niche site and an authority site? I think it's just marketing and branding. Generally, when people talk about it, an authority site in, in quotes, might be bigger. It might be sort of a, a go-to source in the industry, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's much bigger or much higher quality. Some people do have, quote, authority sites that are a little smaller than you might imagine. And then some people might define a niche site as something very small, maybe with not that much content or maybe lower quality content. But I mean, my brand is Niche Site Project, and uh, so I, I got to stick with that name. But yeah, from my perspective, usually it's a site that has content. Usually it gets its uh, traffic from 
organic SEO. And usually it earns money from display ads and affiliate offers. And if you go by that definition, then a niche site and authority site can basically be the same thing. And typically might we split them out like an authority site might be more like cleaners paradise and it has a uh, like a really cool woman as a spokesperson and they talk about all things cleaning and then there's a cleaning supplies for sale and you show up on Amazon and they get 3% of the sale versus like bestcleaningsupplies.com where you just have like that might be more like niche versus authority in, in terms of branding. Yeah, yeah, you got it. And actually to go a little further, a case study that I've followed on my channel and podcast, um, she has a site that started just basically as a, as an affiliate site. And then she later added, you know, the display ads and now she has some of her own digital products as well. So like she's slowly growing and every step of the way she's earning more and sort of owning more of the pie, right? When you sell your own digital products, the margins are insane, right? It's like 90, 95%, very, very profitable. From the Pat Flynn era, has that playbook fundamentally changed? And I think we should like illuminate it because we're just sort of assuming right now that everybody knows like what this affiliate niche site playbook is, but let's not do that. Let's talk about what Pat Flynn talked about in 2014 and how things have evolved to present day. Sure. So typically you would start by maybe brainstorming, figure out the niche that you want to approach, maybe do some keyword research to make sure people are searching for. How do you select niches well? I... I suggest people aim for something that they are actually into and care about because at some point things are going to get difficult or less fun to work on. So you may as well be working on something that you're interested in. You don't have to be passionate. You just have to be a little bit interested. I do have a um, couple friends that they don't really care. They just love the process. But for me, I like to be interested in it. I like coffee and I, I drink that. So if you do a little bit of keyword research and maybe topic research and a little competitor analysis, you'll see that people do search for coffee-related terms and there's communities around coffee and people really care about it. People get obsessed with coffee. and It does. <laughs> once you do a little of that keyword research, then you'll have an idea if you, know, you could actually get that organic search traffic. After that, you, know, you could either write the content yourself or hire writers. There's plenty of places to go hire writers. And these days, there are a lot of people that do very little off-site SEO and get backlinks because uh, one, people are lazy and they would prefer not to do that work. And then two, you know, Google has cracked down year over year with algorithm updates on the way people get links. And that's something that we could definitely dive into, but I'll pause there. So that's kind of the high level of the, the framework. So the basic idea is figure out a niche that has products and there's all kinds of keyword research tools that help you do that. You toss up a WordPress site and then you start cranking out useful content for people that have buying interest in this stuff. Yeah, and one of the bigger shifts is to publish more informational content. So how-to guides or just general information. Yeah, publish content and some of the biggest uh, shifts since those early days. Number one, the quality of the content is much higher now. So previously you could publish garbage and there's still garbage out there that ranks pretty well, 
but the general level of the quality of the content is much, much higher. Sometimes it's experts writing the content as well. So not only is it easier to read and more helpful, you have like people that are pros and have spent their life on that specific topic that are writing the content. One of the other big things is the amount of time it takes to rank. So when I got started, you could rank number one for a fairly competitive term, maybe five or 6,000 searches per month. And you could rank number one in like two or three months. And that represented many thousands of dollars per month. That's what I did. I got I probably got a little lucky with uh, timing and just being naive and thinking that I could do it and was able to rank really quickly and earn lots of money. Now, that might take a year or 18 months with a lot more effort. And so how are you guys adjusting now? You have to be very patient. You have to think about your timelines on a much longer scale. And instead of thinking about two to six months, if you're thinking about two to six years, you can make much different decisions and be a lot more patient. And that's one of the reasons why I mentioned being interested in the topic and being maybe part of the community that would want to read that site. And you don't have to. Some people do you know, sell their sites pretty quickly um, afterwards in places like Empire Flippers or, or some other you know, brokers. Do you have any rules of thumb for choosing niches besides your level of interest? Anything in terms of like price points or emerging products versus existent ones, stuff like that. Because part of me is like, man, like you're tempted to think, isn't this all played out? But then you look at the e-commerce pie over the years and it's, the fact is it's just more commerce for people to deal with. And not everybody's going to their computer and sitting there for two years and generating useful content for all these new products that are coming out. As far as price point, which is kind of important, I do like pricing between say 100 $125 for some of the core products. And I like a wide range as well. So for example, I mean, you can get a coffee maker that is 10 bucks, get a super cheap coffee maker, or you can get a very expensive one that has a burr grinder and the beans are in there and everything's all set up and it runs by itself and cleans itself and all that stuff. And I, I like something like that where there's a pretty wide range, but you could focus in on maybe something that has a higher price point. To contrast that, you probably don't want to aim for like the uh, like the book niche in general because typically books are fairly cheap and you have to sell so many books. So I would generally avoid that unless you know you're a librarian and that's your <laughs> that's your thing. But generally, if you're selling like really low cost products where you're not going to be able to earn very much with a, you know, three, four percent commission, like I would probably keep moving and find something different. Now, that said, we're kind of product focused in in this discussion right now, but it is very important. And one of the other shifts is just publishing a lot more informational content, other guidelines for for choosing a niche. You don't necessarily want to see no competition. If you found something and there's literally zero competitors, it means you might be a little too early and you don't necessarily want to be the first to the market because that's about education. And then you're probably going to waste all your time educating the market versus selling products, for example. That said, 
being kind of early on, so people are getting more like smart home devices and that sort of thing. I think, you know, from the emerging market standpoint, that could be really good. There's probably products that are not developed yet that are going to be coming online. Plus, I mean, I have a fairly new house. We hardly have uh, any smart devices in here. So we're indicating that most houses probably don't have a lot of smart devices. So that could be a space where you can promote products, find you know new products that are just coming out. And it, it could just be a kind of wide open set of keywords that you could approach. Now I think about our coffee authority site and I know that there's this great coffee machine built in Milan, say, and I want to do a review on it. But the problem is it's not on Amazon. Should I go ahead and write that article? I mean, what what sort of sites are you guys building? Are you building the things that are just driving us to Amazon or are you building this more general coffee intrigue site? Nowadays, it should be the more general coffee site. And one thing I didn't mention, so Amazon, and we've spent a lot of time on Amazon, it's the easiest way to get started. But I think it's super important to look for those other opportunities. The biggest thing is like, you're probably going to earn a higher commission on those other affiliate programs. It comes at a cost. There's always trade-offs. So usually Amazon is going to convert at a much higher rate. It's so low friction. I can like accidentally order something on my phone right now while we're recording. <laughs> yeah, It's totally. too easy to order something from Amazon. And those other sites may have a little more friction to purchase and the conversion rate won't be as high. But if it is, like you said, if it's a product that's not even offered on Amazon, that's perfect because they have to buy it through the other source anyway. And there's, you know, there's other affiliate programs you could sign up. If you could buy something online, usually there's an affiliate program that you could find and hunt down. So highly encourage that. Further, if you can find those digital products to refer people to, that's great. Is there a course on coffee? Well, I haven't looked, but I would guess that there probably is some sort of a tasting course or how to make the best pour over coffee or whatever. I have a feeling there are courses on coffee that you can check out or being a barista or something like that, something related. I mean, those are great to promote as well. And it sort of spreads the uh, risk and diversifies your revenue in general, which is almost always a good thing. Now, it sounds like so far, like if we just take your community and generalize them, on the one side, you have Google organic, and then in the middle, you have your affiliate links and WordPress. And then on the back end, you have that affiliate partner that's paying you out, call it REI or Amazon. Could you generalize for us like what the pieces of those pie look like typically? Like is Google organic 80% of the traffic or 50% or, and then on the other side, how are people monetizing their, their affiliate sites? Google traffic typically is probably 90 to 98% of the traffic. So if someone has figured out their particular niche does really well on Pinterest, for example, they may get a little bit more, but typically it is coming through Google. So typically I do see Amazon as one of the, the primary earning uh, places. So that that typically is about 50%. And it, d- it does depend on how much and what kind of content the, the people have on their site. 
but I often see a 50-50 split of display ad revenue and then affiliate revenue, typically Amazon. And then if someone has some additional affiliate programs, most of the time those are, you know, no more than like 15 or 20%. And most of the time those are physical products. So I don't think most of, you know, the people in, in my community and community at large are promoting very many digital products. What about private deals? A little bit. And one of the best that I've heard is to have a site or maybe have a few sites and kind of focus on a vertical. Maybe you have a few coffee sites out there and you have all this sales data, historical sales data from Amazon. So you can just pull the report and then you can go to the manufacturer and say, hey, I sold a hundred of these per month for the last 18 months. I'm ranking really well on this particular page. I'm ranking you a fifth right now. Why don't I rank you number one? And I'll, I'll place you up there. You'll have sort of the preferred spot and you pay me on the back end. I'll, I'll send you an Amazon report and you pay me an additional X percent. So I have heard that. And it obviously it helps if you have the leverage of multiple sites, historical data, and I can't argue with that. That can happen. Uh, I think probably you would have to have a more mature site at that point or portfolio of sites to be able to do that. But Sometimes there might not be a public-facing affiliate program, but if you have traffic on your site and you can get traffic to a specific company selling a product, like they want to sell it. And I've talked to a few people that have, they've shifted or at least added drop shipping to their site. So as the market has changed, some people thought, ah, I may as well you know, try to do drop shipping and they would set up affiliate programs on their drop shipping site. So you, as an affiliate marketer, you could approach a drop shipping site that you could tell that they're running ads, but maybe they don't have any organic traffic and you know they're spending money on ads already. So you, you can work with them and maybe figure out what numbers work for both of you. Typically, I'm trying to think of if there's a way we could put a dollar value to this stuff. We're talking, you're saying two years of work, but how much content are we talking about? And what is the split between uh, creating content and doing link building? I'll use a case study example. So Christy, who I've been working with for a couple of years, she started her site at the end of 2018. So it's um, about three years old. Could you give us a niche that is a lot like hers, but very different from hers, if that makes sense? Like similar price point, similar vibe, but wouldn't impringe on her uh, privacy at all. So we'll use uh, maybe like the the quilting niche as a stand-in. And I'm a 42-year-old white male. I don't know anything about quilting. I don't care about it. And when Christy- Not yet, Doug. <laughs> but when Christy approached me with her niche, I was like, I don't know if that'll work. I don't know anything about the products or the price points, but you did your keyword research. She's a member of that community. So I think it does fit well with the quilting, which I don't know much about, but I know there's some products and uh, my mom used to quilt and she would get into it. So 
At this point, Christy has been working on her site for three years and she grew slowly, but currently right now she has about 480 pieces of content on her site. And over the span of three years, I believe her overall expenses are say $35,000. So not all at once, she, she bootstrapped and reinvested as time went on. She has hired basically a, an admin to help her out and do some outreach to build links over time. But overall, she has spent most of the money on content, most of her time just publishing content and going after low competition, long tail keywords. Like that was the main thing getting started. So a low competition, long tail key term in the quilting niche might be something like? Best sewing machine for quilting. Maybe it's very specific. So people are not just looking for a sewing machine. They want to know the specific application. So the, those long tail keywords are great because you could really speak to the specific thing that the people are looking for. You got the right person on your site because they entered such a long search phrase. And I don't know the full split of how much the 35K went into the admin doing outreach and such. But generally, if I had to guess, it's probably 70 to 80% on the content and focusing mostly on the content. Now, with a link building portion, that's a kind of a, a slippery slope just because it's hard to tell you know, which links are helpful. There's a lot of companies out there, a lot of agencies that can get you some links and they can get them for you fast, but they might be complete garbage. And it's really hard to tell which ones are quality which agencies are providing those good links. And from the beginning, Christy knew that because she was part of the community, she wanted to have this site. She was never going to sell it. And I advised her to network, go and follow people on Instagram, check out the YouTube influencers, do some roundups, like get those people to know who you are and share their content. And slowly over time, she built those relationships and she's been able to get really amazing links that other people can't get through this longer term vision. So it's it's just setting up these opportunities and having the long term view instead of how can I make $10,000 a month by the end of the year. And $10,000 a month is still the magic number in internet marketing, it feels like. Well, it feels like there's two different ways you can go because I love that approach to affiliate marketing where you're like, I'm going to all the conferences. Because you just can't predict what wonderful things are going to happen when you're like you're using your authority website as a platform. But then there's the other way, which is like your platform is spreadsheets and 25 age domains and a whole content factory. And so you can kind of take it like the technical route, I feel, and then you can take it the authority route as well. You know, you brought up a good point of having maybe age domains or something where you're you know jumping in in the middle. There's a lot of people who, you know, going back to my point before of folks that have worked for a lot of years at their corporate job and they have money to invest, like they're maxing out their 401ks and investing elsewhere, but they want to do something different, something on the side. So they may buy a site that is earning you know, a few hundred dollars per month. And it's a great way to shortcut some of the uncertainty. It does, of course, cost you money. There's, that's not necessarily a cheap thing to do. But some people are in a position to spend forty dollars or $50,000 on something that they could work on on the side. And maybe it grows into something else, something much bigger. 
I just want to give a big thanks to all of you who listened to ads like this and went on over to dynamitejobs.com to see what we've got going on over there. Because of that, we've helped place hundreds of qualified remote professionals in your companies last year. And for this holiday season, many of you are gearing up your operation for continued growth in 2022. And to help you do it, we've got three exciting options for you to explore. The first is our entirely new hiring platform with a job post dashboard that allows you to repost and promote anytime. We've got a growing list of features there, including intelligent promotion options to help you get the maximum amount of applications. We've also got our done for you service. If you're sick of sorting, assessing, and interviewing, you can hire our senior recruiting staff to do the heavy lifting on your behalf. They are experienced at identifying trajectory, alignment, salary fit, and much more. And the best part is it's a flat fee. If you're hiring multiple times in 2022, we're offering bundles with steep discounts. Head on over to dynamitejobs.com and book a call to hear about that. And finally, we offer contract recruiting. That's right, a zero risk hiring option if you don't really know about the long-term fit. Or if you're looking for a partner to help take care of the legalities of hiring contractors, we can do that for a monthly fee for the contractors that you bring on board. So let's grow together. If you're looking to grow your remote business, book a call with our team and find out today how Dynamite Jobs can help. You can find out about this and much more over at dynamitejobs.com slash remote recruiting. Back to Christy. What are her results after three years? So in 2021, she earned about 75K about half from Amazon, about half from display ads. And I think overall she has earned something like 120,000, 130,000. So it's ended up being essentially a full-time income that she's done on the side. I think she puts in about 10 hours per week or so at this point in time. And I mean, it's a, a topic that she loves. Again, she's part of that whole community and it's turned into other opportunities. So speaking of other opportunities, she also just signed a year retainer worth like 30 or 40,000 for 2022 as a copywriter for one of the brands that she really likes anyway. I love that story. Doug, I'm kind of like you listening to Pat Flynn in 2014. I'm listening to this playbook and I'm like, is this is too good to be true? And could we have been having more or less the same exact conversation six years ago? Why aren't we talking about TikTok? Why aren't we talking about Instagram? Why aren't we talking about Facebook groups? What's going on? Why are we still talking about like WordPress, Google, organic affiliate links? What's happening here? It's kind of amazing. A few things have shifted and it's constantly adapting a little bit. But I mean, I think it's going to be a business model that potentially can shift platforms a little bit. There's some very big YouTube channels. We haven't talked about that at all, but there's some big YouTube channels that just earn money from affiliate marketing as well. So, I mean, if you put a lot of this stuff together, you could have a, a content website and you're also publishing videos, repurposing that content and earning on both sides and diversifying sort of your, your traffic sources a little bit there. And as far as the the social media portion of it, why we aren't talking about it as much, well, it's not as revenue focused from what I can tell. So I have, I played around on TikTok just a little bit as a consumer and 
I'm not sure how you pull someone off the platform. I've talked to a couple people that have been able to do it, but I'm not sure how it worked on the back end. And I am a uncreative person who doesn't <laughs> like change. I'm set in my ways, um, telling kids to get off my lawn all the time. And when I arrived at something that worked, I just stuck on it and iterated and it's totally fine. I mean, I can continue to, you know, refine the process in certain ways, but if the business model works and I'm adapting and I'm staying interested, then I'm good. I think there's a lot of people in a position where maybe they're, they have 50,000 or a hundred thousand that they'd be willing to invest. And it feels that if you've chose a good brand, you could imagine being in this position where you take a couple thousand of the 100 grand and you pay someone like you and someone like you to like review the strategy and say, I would feel comfortable with this. If you deploy it to one website, the emergence of clarity and brokerages have increased the value of these sites. It's really hard for me to imagine that you couldn't find a customer to at least give you a hundred grand for what you built over the first couple of years. Yeah, I agree. And to your point of like the the valuation of these sites in 2015, people were saying, oh man, the, the value of these sites is going higher and higher. I can't imagine it going more. And it has continued to climb, especially as the markets are very high, the, the stock markets are high, real estate's expensive and people are looking for other places to put money. And, you know, the returns are great. The risk is high for sites like this compared to potentially some other investment opportunities. But you know, there's so much cash out there. There's so much cash out there. There's also this idea of the fact that there are more institutional exit opportunities now. As an affiliate marketer, you can be that bridge potentially where more and more larger companies are going to be looking to bring on content partners. And if you're the one building them, you de-risk it for them and then you get paid in the end. I remember, because I was there at the beginning of Empire Flippers, like I was in the room and we saw the valuations, like one year profit. And now you, you wouldn't even need necessarily to represent a profit in order to sell it. People would buy it just for the content or the brand or whatever. And so it does seem like an interesting opportunity for capital deployment here. Doug, uh, Final question, always the hardest one, which is uh, there's a lot of people that are on the job side of the fence listening to the show. It's actually, for reference, this came from a survey. So take it for a grain of salt, but over 80% of listeners of this show are running their own business full-time. But for the 20% who want to join us, what's your advice for them? I'll get started right away. When I think back, when I started my first site in 2013, if I would have started a few years sooner, I'd be much smarter now and more mature as an entrepreneur. We've been talking about affiliate sites and content sites today, but if you like video, start a YouTube channel, do that. Like go where your skills lie, where your interests are and work on it for a little while. Try to pick a project like affiliate marketing where I mentioned you have the opportunity to learn these skills that are really transferable. And even if they fail or they don't reach your ultimate goal, you'll be better on the other end. 
it might work out. You may be surprised. You know, if you just keep at something for long enough, you may be one of the the few people standing at the end. And I'm Dan, I'm sure you've you've seen that with as long as you guys have been doing the podcast, you know. For sure. Well, Doug, I appreciate you doing what you do. And uh, thanks for coming by the TMBA podcast today. Thanks, man. It's been a blast. Big shout out to Doug Cunnington for dropping by the show. I encourage you to check out his site over at nichesiteproject.com for more detail and some wonderful case studies on how you can emulate Doug's process. Also check out his podcast, The Doug Show. I am a listener and a fan where he does a great job of breaking down complex topics into simple, actionable steps. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.